0: morning, church. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the ways that you have prepared us this morning for this moment where it is our privilege to open your word. And we we thank you for ways that you have been preparing us all week for this, ways that we likely are not even aware of. The text that we consider now, Father, is one most precious to us. We pray, Father, that you would grant us to understand it rightly that we would take it in once again, that we would believe it, that we would recognize the gravity of it for us and for our eternity, that we would recognize its significance for our present, that we would cherish it. And For these next few minutes, our attention would would be fastened to this text such a way that our our hearts are, are taken up to greater affection for Jesus, and our lives are moved toward greater faithfulness to our King Jesus. We ask these things in His name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 20. So as you're finding your place there, please stand with me and we will read those 20 verses. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and led Him away, and delivered Him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked Him, are you the King of the Jews? And He answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused Him of many things. And Pilate again asked Him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged to Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. You may be seated. It could be easy to characterize everything happening here as a a great tragedy on par with One of Shakespeare's plays, a story with tragic events involving the downfall of of a main character. And though it may be tempting in the confines of the last few passages to characterize the story that way, it would require us to ignore crucial elements of the context. Mark has been telling us all along to expect this and that it is not tragic, but rather it is gloriously necessary in order for Jesus to accomplish His mission. Mark has been telling us from the very first verse of the book that Jesus is the Son of God. The Father Himself affirmed that truth from heaven at Jesus' baptism in, in one, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus began to announce the good news of the arrival of a kingdom, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, and it becomes clear through Jesus' teaching, the testimony of others, including the testimony of demons, it becomes clear through Jesus' actions that He is the King of this kingdom and that this kingdom is unlike any kingdom the world has ever known. Further, Jesus is a king unlike any king the world has ever known. For this king has come not simply to lead a nation to international prominence, but rather he has come to deliver his people from slavery to one spiritual kingdom into the freedom of his own spiritual kingdom. And a key verse to that end, shaping our expectations about this king, was Mark 10.45. Some of you may have that verse memorized. That is where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, what kind of a person needs a ransom? It's a person who is enslaved, controlled, and in this case, Jesus has come to ransom those enslaved to sin and death in the domain of darkness. So this King Jesus came to give His life as a ransom for them, to give Himself up to death so that they might be free. And three times Jesus explains what is going to happen in order to ransom His people when He goes to Jerusalem. He did it once in in 8.31. He did it once in 9.31. He does it a third time in 10.33 and following. And I'll read that third prediction to you right now. This is 10.33 and 34. Jesus said to His disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him. And spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And that is how Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many. This is how he's going to die to free them from one kingdom that they might be a part of his kingdom. It's going to happen in Jerusalem, and Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to to take place. But He's not going to stay dead, He tells them three times, but those three predictions in each one of them, He tells them He's going to rise from the dead. And in the conversation that He just had in chapter 14 with the Jewish leaders, Jesus indicated that after that resurrection, that is when He is going to reign over all. That is when He is going to be vindicated on the other side of the resurrection. He has to die first, and He has to rise from the dead in order to free His people from sin and death in that domain of darkness, and then He will reign over them in the kingdom of God. So, though everyone around Him expects Him to be a different kind of king than what he has said he is going to be. They expect him to be this earthly king going to Jerusalem to take the throne there. Everything that is happening to Jesus in this passage, the previous passage, the coming passage, everything is happening exactly as Jesus said it would. And we are intended to understand that the path to Jesus' enthronement and the path to our freedom in his kingdom is one that takes Him through, first, rejection and condemnation, mocking, death, and resurrection. Nothing is going wrong here. Everything is going right. This is how the kingdom comes. And that last prediction that Jesus made in, in Mark 10, and 34, it's like an outline for, for this passage and the next passage that we will look at, Lord willing, next time. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. Everyone in this passage talks like, lives like, makes decisions like. Jesus isn't a king, but that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And so rather than all of these things leading us to doubt that He is King, rather we should regard Jesus as the King. We should believe that He is the King and we should bow down to Him and serve Him. And that is the point that Mark is trying to make here in these verses and the coming passage. So we're going to walk through this text and we're going to take it all in slowly and then we'll consider what should these things mean to our lives. How should the nature of Christ's reign show up in the way that we live? So we're going to see a few things about Christ's reign, what kind of king He is or is portrayed to be in this passage. The first thing that we find is that Jesus is a betrayed king. Mark shows Jesus to be a betrayed king. That may seem to be old news, given that Judas betrayed Jesus to the Jews a couple of sermons ago, but the word betrayed is the same word that's translated delivered over numerous times throughout this narrative. So the text pictures Jesus, a rightful king, the one to whom everyone in the narrative owes ultimate allegiance, all of them repeatedly. Betraying or delivering Jesus over, as Mark 10.33 says. So, of course, the word is used numerous times of, of Judas. Back in chapter 14, he betrays or delivers Jesus over to the Jews. The same word is used in 15.1. Look at 15.1 at again. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate, it's the same word that is used of of Judas betraying Jesus to the Jews. Now they have betrayed Him or delivered Him over to Pilate. Now jump down to verse 15. The same word is used again. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered Him over to be crucified. So what we're seeing is that Jesus in the, I'm sorry, Judas in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples should have fallen down and pledged allegiance to Jesus. Instead, he delivered Jesus over to the Jews. And the Jews, long awaiting a king, long awaiting this Davidic Messiah king, they should have fallen down and pledged allegiance to Jesus. Instead, they have delivered him over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles who Oh, their very existence and sustenance to the word of Christ's power. They should have fallen down and pledged allegiance to Jesus instead. Now they are delivering Jesus over to death. All of them are saying essentially, you're not a king. And all of them, all of this is happening exactly as Jesus said it would. Every bit of this is part of the plan. Jesus is a betrayed king. Mark also betrayed, pre- presents Jesus as an innocent king. He's an innocent king. Rome, as you, as you know, was, was the great superpower of the day. And Judea was one of their conquered territories. Now, Rome wanted to avoid insurgencies. Insurgencies are costly in terms of manpower and time and money. And Rome avoided insurgencies by doing their best to keep the territories happy. And so they would install prefects or governors in these various territories to keep the peace and to maintain law and order, to do those two things. And it's a delicate balance. It's a hard job because you have to keep people in line. You can't let them just do whatever they want But you have to give them enough freedom to do their own thing so that there aren't any uprisings. Now, to to maintain this delicate balance, Rome would give these governors tremendous freedom to do whatever they needed to do to maintain that balance. Now, Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, he wasn't very good at this. He had gotten himself into a good bit of trouble by this time. He had flexed his muscle a bit too much on the law and order side, It made the people mad. There was an uprising. There was some bloodshed. And Rome was not happy about this. He was not maintaining that balance very well. Rome had sent word to Pilate saying, this is not what we call the balance that we're looking for. And if you don't do a better job, we're going to find somebody else who will. So here we are. The Jews have brought Jesus to Pilate. have handed him over to Pilate very early in the morning. There are numerous reasons for this early morning thing. You'll remember that Jesus' trial with the Jews was in the middle of the night. So they're all already up. A second reason for the early morning delivery of Jesus to Pilate is that it's been recorded by numerous historical sources that these Roman officials, they liked to do things like the Marines. Get everything done as early as you possibly can. It's been reported that that some of these governors got all their stuff done by 10 in the morning. So so this is just when Pilate does his stuff. Third reason for this early morning meeting or delivery of Jesus to Pilate is this is a way to avoid the pro-Jesus crowd, which we'll talk about a bit later. Look at 15.2 again. Pilate asked him, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now, remember back in chapter 14 that the Jews condemned Jesus for blasphemy. Now, that kind of thing is not going to stick with Pilate. Pilate doesn't care about that kind of thing. So so they have morphed that into a threat against Rome. Now, in reality, the Jews would love to see Rome overthrown, but more than that, they want to see Jesus killed. So they pretend to be good subjects of the Roman Empire and, and, and what they've done is they've come to Pilate and said essentially, hey, this guy says that he's king of this nation, king of the Jews. And, you know, you don't want any insurgencies. That's what has been, been brought to Pilate. Now, there's some truth to that king of the Jews thing, right? Because when they asked Jesus at that trial before the council, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? Jesus said yes. But they know. Based on Jesus' teaching, that he's actually no threat to Rome at all. Rather, he's a threat to them. They've left that out, likely, as they're, as they're bringing this to Pilate. Now, a way to render Pilate's words here in this question to Jesus, a way to render it with, a, with the appropriate emphasis, would be to say, You are the king of the Jews? I mean, just the way that, that, that it's worded indicates that he does not find Jesus impressive or threatening in any way. And Jesus' answer is worded with the same kind of emphasis. Jesus says, "You have said so." There are numerous indications in the text, not only that Pilate did not consider Jesus a threat, but that Pilate did not consider Jesus guilty of anything. One indication is in verses three through five, the Jewish leaders, they're making more accusations against Jesus, likely because this King of the Jews thing is not sticking. It's finding no traction. With Pilate. And then when Pilate prompts Jesus to respond to these many accusations, what do we find? Jesus says nothing. And Mark notes here that Pilate was amazed. He's amazed at Jesus' silence. Now, why would that be? Why would he find that amazing? We'd find it amazing because what would you conclude about somebody who makes who makes no defense. You, you, you have to conclude, this is a person that is not interested in preserving their own life. And that is amazing. And we also should find that amazing. And we also should conclude that from Jesus' silence. Jesus has no interest in preserving His own life. And why is that? Remember, the... the this is not just about Jesus securing a throne, but it is Jesus securing a throne and in the process of that, gathering many brothers and sisters with Him into that kingdom. if Jesus is acquitted of any crime here. He is not going to go to the cross. And there will be none of His brothers and sisters in that kingdom. Pilate's amazed at Jesus' silence as we should be. There's more to indicate that Jesus is, is innocent. We'll look more closely in a moment at the release of Barabbas over Jesus, but just notice that, that it's, it's Pilate's custom at the feast to release a prisoner, and this is likely a very good way to maintain that balance we were talking about just a moment ago, to, to maintain the peace. You give the people what they want occasionally, and this is, a, this is good politics here. Give them one of the prisoners. When it comes time to release someone for the Jews, Pilate suggests releasing the king of the Jews. Now, now think about that. It is in Pilate's best interest to release the least threatening person he can. You, you don't want to release a true insurrectionist if you're wanting to maintain that balance. But he suggests giving them Jesus. Why would that be? He finds Jesus unthreatening and not guilty of anything. Verse reinforces that. He says, For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests delivered him up. In other words, not because he's actually guilty of anything. He didn't do anything. The chief priests are just envious of him. And when the people eventually call for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate says to them, Why? What evil has he done? It is obvious that Pilate believes Jesus to be innocent. He hasn't done anything at all. And he is no threat. This is an innocent king who is going to suffer for what he does not deserve. But we have to remember in the context of the whole book that this is all part of the plan. This is the road to the throne and this is the way that this king brings with him those that belong with him. He's an innocent king. He's also an exchanged king. He's an exchanged king. Some expositors have made much about how the crowd that hailed Jesus as the heir of David on Palm Sunday called for His crucifixion on on Good Friday. However, many commentators hold that the crowd assembled on Friday was not composed of the same folks that were so pro-Jesus throughout the week. Again, verse six tells us about Pilate's custom of releasing a prisoner at the at, at the feast. Verse seven informs us about Barabbas, who was a member of this insurrectionist group of murderers, currently imprisoned. By the way, that means Barabbas is exactly the kind of person that that Pilate needs to keep in jail. Verse eight is important for understanding the composition of this crowd. Remember, this is early in the morning. Why are they there? Why is this crowd assembled? Verse 8 tells us they are there to ask for the release of a prisoner. Now, we don't know how important the release of these prisoners was to the average Jew. We, We would have to speculate to answer that question. It could be that this is like the World Series to them. And everybody wants to go. But... It is more likely that a very particular kind of person gets up early, early in the morning to go to Pilate to ask him to let a a prisoner go free. The point is, though, they have not gathered to have Jesus crucified. Mark has told us why they're there. They're there to get a prisoner released. They have not gathered to have Jesus crucified. I find it highly unlikely that these are the same people then that constituted the normal crowd surrounding Jesus. Why? Because that normal crowd was so pro-Jesus that the Jewish leaders, they had to do all that arresting and trying of Jesus in secret in the middle of the night. Remember, the Jewish leaders, they they were talking about that just one day before, just the previous afternoon. We've got to get him, we've got to try him at night because of these people. It's likely that we're talking about two different crowds. This is likely a much smaller crowd with a very particular interest in the release of a prisoner. Likely zealots or, or, or Jewish nationalists, which would have offered a great opportunity for the chief priests. Because a crowd like that is very easy to stir up. That is also the exact kind of crowd that Pilate would want to appease and that's the exact kind of crowd to whom Pilate would want to say, would you like me to give you the king of the Jews? You zealots, you Jewish nationalists, you guys who are all about the Jewish nation, should I give to you this king whom I, whom I personally don't think is actually the king, but you probably do think he's a king, and I don't think he's threatening, but you probably think he's wonderful, and you're rah-rah about him, and this is a win-win situation, so don't you want the king of the Jews? But verse eleven, the chief priests have stirred this crowd up to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. How they did that, we don't know. It's possible that they that they're telling the crowd, "Look, Barabbas is way better for your cause than this Jesus guy. Jesus is all about love and healing and helping people and doing good to your enemies. So Barabbas isn't. We want Barabbas, right? It's possible." But look at verse 12. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall we do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted out, All the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So, what does this crowd want? They don't want the innocent king. They want the rebel murderer. Kill the king, free the murderer. And Remember all the indications that Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. It's it's obvious. It's obvious that Jesus is innocent. It is also obvious from the text that, that Pilate believes so. Pilate believes him to be innocent. And great pains have been taken throughout the years to portray Pilate as really being between a rock and a hard place, to kind of exonerate Pilate to a certain extent. Man, he was really in a rough place here. He wanted to free Jesus, but if he doesn't kill Jesus, he'll have a rebellion on his hands. And some may want to to defend him. But the truth is that he knowingly had an innocent man killed in order to save his own job. I don't find that heroic in any way. I have no sympathy for him. Why was Jesus killed? What does this text tell us? It wasn't for blasphemy. It wasn't for insurrection. It was because this Jewish crowd demanded it, and their Roman oppressor refused to stand up to them. But again, all part of the plan. It's happening exactly as Jesus said it must that's the word that Jesus used in, in Mark 10, 34. This must happen. This is the road to enthronement. This, this is what must happen in order for Jesus to, to receive the kingdom and bring with Him those who belong to Him. Jesus must be an exchanged king. Finally, He was a mocked king. A mocked king. Now, the text really slows down here. We, as as we read this, and, and perhaps because of movies that we've seen or, or books that we've read, we, we may want to slow down on a couple of words in verse 15, having scourged. We might want to slow down there. The fact is that Mark doesn't emphasize that. Not that it isn't important. Jesus did predict that he would be that he would be scourged or flogged back in Mark 10.34. He said that and, and it happened. But Mark offers no real commentary there. and There's, there's no evidence in the text that he's, he slows down there. He doesn't slow down at all. In fact, in Greek, it's a single word. It's a participle, single word. And the fact that he doesn't comment on it may indicate that well, everybody knows what this is. There's no reason to talk about it. it Maybe that it's just, it is so distasteful. And unpleasant to think about that that Mark doesn't want to dwell on it. I'm not inclined to think that. I'm just I just think that there's it's not part of the point that, that he wants to make here. But what he does emphasize is this mocking. The text slows down and there are multiple ways that he's doing here doing it here that I, that I won't get into, but we've, we've, we've already seen some mocking back in chapter 14 when Jesus was before the Jews. Remember how they covered His face? They began to hit Him and, and shout, Prophesy! And there's going to be more mocking when Jesus is actually on the cross, but, but this is where the text really slows down and emphasizes the fact that Jesus is being mocked. This scene is central. In their mocking, in their making fun, they're essentially saying, This is no king. And Mark intends for the irony to be thick. They are mocking the actual king. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And presumably, this is is after the scourging, and they... They don't take Jesus to be to be crucified immediately. Remember the previous verse said, "And and scourging him, he delivered him over to be crucified." And you would expect, well, let's just get, we've got a busy day, let's just get this done. The soldiers want to have some fun first with his king, and they gather the whole battalion. And some have estimated that this battalion could have been as many as 600 soldiers. Others say there's no way to know how many there would have been at a a small outpost like like Jerusalem. At any rate, the words that Mark uses, the whole battalion indicates it's all the soldiers available. Just get everybody. Let's get everybody involved in the mocking of this king. Verse 17, And they clothed him in a purple robe Twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Purple dye, it's extremely expensive, and so it, it was only worn by, by royalty typically. So th- this is a mock royal robe. We're clothing him like a king. Every king needs a crown. What could be more insulting and, and painful, of course, than a crown made of thorns? So they twist one together, put it on his head. Verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Verses, verses 18 and 19 go together and both indicate r- repeated actions. So there's no telling how, how long this went on. We, we don't know, but just striking his head with the reed while he's got that crown on and spitting on him mock adulation over and over. Now, they are mocking him. They're doing these things because in their minds they think it's ridiculous that a man like him could be a king. But Mark's point is an ironic one. He is the king. And from verse 1 of chapter 1, that is the point that Mark has been making. He is the king, the long-awaited king, come to save his people from, not Romans, but sin and death in the domain of darkness. And his unique path to enthronement takes him through this exact treatment, all according to plan. Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Though, though everyone in the narrative treats Jesus if, as if he is not king, Mark has crafted the narrative in such a way as to make the opposite point. All has happened exactly as Jesus, the king, has decreed. One commentator has noted that that Pilate declared him king. He was anointed with spit, robed in purple, crowned with thorns, hailed with blows and bows. They paid mock homage to the true king of the universe. Even as they're making fun of him, they are actually bowing down to the true king. You remember Psalm 110 from the passage that we studied last week. This is the passage that, that, that Jesus alluded to as He's answering the high priest's question. He said, are you the Messiah, Son of the Blessed? Jesus alluded to this psalm, the first two verses of which read this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule Midst of your enemies, Jesus. Even as all of this is going on, Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. And so, though it may look as if we have a tragedy on our hands, nothing could be further from the truth. This is exactly what has been decreed. Now, if if we believe these things, how will we live? How how will it shape our, our thinking? our affections, our lives. That's a question that could be answered in numerous ways. Belief in the rightful reign of, of Christ could have any number of implications for, for life. And and I encourage you to consider that question. Yourself, consider that question in, in the moments after this message. Consider that question in your own time with the Lord as you're spending, spending time in the Word and in prayer this week. If I believe this passage, how will it affect the way that I live? That's a, it's a, it's a crucial discipline for a believer. to Ask that of, of every sermon that we hear, of every passage that we read. If I believe this, how will I live? I have three suggestions based upon the details of of this text, three suggestions of how belief in these things might guide the way that we live. I asked earlier, why was Jesus killed? Why was Jesus killed? And and I suggested that it was because the the Jews demanded it and Pilate refused to stand up to them. And that is true. But let me ask that question a bit differently. I'll add a word to to the beginning of it. Ultimately... Why was Jesus killed? Ultimately, why was Jesus killed? The exchange of Barabbas for Jesus is a great picture of the answer to that question. Now, Barabbas is a name that in Aramaic means son of the father. And I personally don't believe in coincidences. I believe that that's significant. If you're taking notes, you might write down Genesis 5 verses 1 through 3. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. You could also write down Luke 3, 38. Luke 3, 38. Those two passages depict Adam as a son of God. Adam is a son of God. And and I would argue that Barabbas, son of the Father, is something like a picture of man in Adam. He is a rebel murderer. Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father. Very God of very God come to save Adam's race. And so the innocent king is offered in the stead of the rebel murderer. The innocent king goes to the cross. The rebel murderer goes free. The king receives death. The rebel receives life. Jesus is going to die the death of an insurrectionist, which Barabbas actually is. Ultimately, ultimately, why was Jesus killed? He was killed as a divinely planned substitutionary atonement for sin. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Like Adam, we are rebels from the heart in desperate need of atonement for sin needing to be brought back under the gracious rule of our Creator God, which we rejected so long ago. But someone had to pay the penalty for our sin. Someone had to die on that cross. Someone had to rescue us from the domain of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. And it was our cross to which Jesus was condemned, our punishment that He endured that we might be saved. On the cross, the Father laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. We have have no indication what Barabbas' disposition was toward Jesus, but here's what, what it should have been. The message that Jesus began to preach at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. That should have been Barabbas' disposition toward this king who died on his cross. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news of this king who comes to give his life as a ransom for rebel sinners. Those who recognize who Jesus is, this this great Redeemer King who desire to enter His kingdom and to live under His loving reign, who desire to be forgiven and reconciled to the Father by His atoning work on the cross, they should do what Jesus has been preaching since 114 of the Gospel of Mark. They should repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone to save them from the domain of darkness that they might live forever under His reign and His kingdom. If I believe these things, that is one thing that I must do. I must follow Christ in repentance and faith. Living not just a moment of repentance and faith, but a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Turning daily from rebellion and submitting in faith daily to King Jesus. Another way, a second way that that I should live. If I believe these things, isn't it the case that, that even now, even in, in momentary struggles, even in, in daily upsets of what I think should be in this world, isn't it true that even now it appears much of the time as if Christ is not on the throne? As if things are not going according to plan. As if this is all one great tragedy. You don't know, not know day must have seemed less blessed on the surface, the Messiah being tried, convicted, mocked and led away to crucifixion than that day. Everyone thinking, especially the disciples as they're cowering, this is not the way things are supposed to happen. But, but of course, Mark has revealed through the words of Jesus himself, this is precisely how things are supposed to happen. Even though it doesn't look that way, even though it doesn't feel that way, it is a matter of faith to live as if it is the case that Christ reigns. And of course, a few days later, Jesus has, has risen from the dead and everybody understands, oh yes, of course, this is exactly how it had to be. And the disciples are transformed by that knowledge. Transformed. You have a a Peter denying Jesus three times becomes a man who will say anything about this Christ in front of the very crowd that he cowered in front of just a few days earlier. It's transformational knowledge to know that Jesus has risen from the dead and that's what we must keep in, in mind, that Jesus is reigning. In our daily experience, we have to trust that Jesus reigns even now and what we may see that looks like chaos isn't chaos but there is a divine method to the madness around us and it will all make sense one day it's a matter of faith a third way that we should live if we believe these things a third way that we should believe if we live if l- we should live if we believe these things that is that we will live in true deference his authority as king, not in mock reverence, not in mock reverence. See, these soldiers, they were intentionally mocking Jesus and putting on a show of deference, hailing him as king in ways actually intended to mistreat and demean Jesus. Consider, are there ways in which we may unintentionally mock the authority of Christ in our lives. Unintentionally mock His reign. Put on a show of deference while denying His authority. You know, I can show deference in many ways. I can give time, give money, serve in various ways. And those may be, those may actually be signs of true submission to the authority of Christ. But in and of themselves, they are not proof that Christ reigns in my heart because true submission is a matter of the heart. But here are three things that will give me away. They will give my heart away. They will give away whether or not Christ actually is reigning. Three things, my thoughts, my affections, my speech. There likely are others, but those are three. Are there ways in which I I may be showing outward deference and even pointing to those things, pointing myself to those things, pointing other people to those things, while saying of my thoughts, patterns of thought, patterns of speech, patterns of affection, Jesus can't have those things? Now, we're not talking, not talking about the person that is striving to grow in Christ's likeness, and who is able to find pockets of imperfection or failure. Not talking about that. We're all still being sanctified. We're all still being sanctified. And His reign is not going to be perfectly reflected in every area of life until glory. So not talking about that. Rather, we're talking about willful, knowing resistance, intentional resistance, to the authority of Christ in a, in a certain area of life. That, per, that person who says, I'm, I'm giving my time. I'm giving my resources. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But my mouth or a, a particular kind of speech, you can't have that, Lord. I know you want it. You can't have it. Or, or my thought life or, or a particular part of it, it's mine. I refuse it. I'm keeping it. Or this, this, this deep love for something that has proven to be dangerous to me and those around me. I'm not giving that up. Willful resistance or denial of the authority of Christ. If we do that, is there not a sense in which we mock the reign of Christ? We pretend to recognize Him as King while willfully denying it in meaningful ways. If we believe this text, that Christ actually reigns. He is deserving of all our allegiance. And we will repent of any hard attitude that would say in any way, not King. Repent of that. And we'll surrender everything to him. Now there may be other ways in which we will we will bring our life into greater conformity with the scriptures if we believe these things. I'm going to pray now, and in the moments after that, we will share a a moment of silent reflection together, and I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what He would have you to do. If you believe these things, how would He have you to bring your life into greater conformity with the truth? Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that you are a God who would love so much as to give his only son to save wretches like us. We thank you that all of these things are true. And we, we pray, Father, that as we consider these things in the next few minutes and perhaps hours and days that you would grant us to discern how our lives should be brought into greater conformity with the reign of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for Christ's conviction and knowledge and commitment to the reality that his throne lay on the other side of a death, a horrible death, atoning death and resurrection, that he was determined to do that, that he might bring us with him into his kingdom. We thank you for that. Please reveal to us what it would mean for us to live in light of that. Please grant us hearts of of gratitude and faith and love. The desire to live in submission to this great and loving King. We ask in His name. Amen.